Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. It's July the 1st when I'm recording this. And wow, it's hard to believe six months of the year are already over. So I guess we're halfway through those New Year's resolutions that we told ourselves we we're going to make progress for. So maybe this week's a good time to revisit those New Year's resolutions and see how much progress we still have left. So half the time is gone. Hopefully we're halfway through our progress or farther. So this week, several things to talk about through the forecast network, through the content that we've been writing and some new projects that we have. So I'm going to share a little bit of the content. I'm going to share a new project. I'm going to share a little bit of a story about the placebo effect that I had recently experienced. So let's jump into the AEI premium. Let's take a look at some ideas that we've been talking about. And the first one that I want to, to kick off here is gasoline consumption. We've written a few articles about gasoline consumption here in 2022 being sluggish. It's been sluggish in 2020 and raised the question of, will we get back to pre-pandemic driving? And maybe more broadly, will we get back to driving that pre-pandemic gas consumption, I should say? And will gas consumption again grow in the country like it was before the mid-2000s? A lot of reader feedback has been coming. So we're going to keep writing a little bit about this. And so two articles that we have in mind, one of them is just sort of unpacking what's going on with consumption. Consumption has been stalled for the last decade. Why? The second one is going to be looking at ethanol. It's going to be coming out here in a few weeks. So let's take a look at the consumption piece. And one of the charts that actually stands out the most to me of all the charts that we make, we make dozens and dozens and dozens of charts on a monthly basis. So there's thousands of them around the AEI offices is this US gasoline consumption chart. Gasoline consumption goes up and to the right, really from the 1950s all the way to the mid 2000s, and then it pauses and then it turns sideways. And gasoline consumption, even today, is below where it was in 2007, 2008. It was starting to recover before the pandemic, but we just haven't seen growth. It's been sideways at best and maybe trending down if you had the last couple of years. So What's been driving that? And from the data, from an economist standpoint, you think, well, there's two things, there's two levers here that you could change to adjust total gasoline consumption, how efficient the vehicles are that we're driving down the road and how many miles we put on those vehicles. So as we dive into that, the first one is miles driven. And again, these data go back to the 1970s. It follows a beautiful trend line right up until the mid 2000s. And then it turns sideways for five, six, seven years, and then it starts to recover. And then it has a little bit of a, a dip during the pandemic and a, a sluggish recovery after the pandemic. But the key takeaway from here is miles driven has been a huge barrier. So we should have been driving somewhere around 3.7 trillion miles, according to the trend line, and we're somewhere around 3.2 trillion miles. And so it's still up. It's been growing, but at a much slower rate than what we might have otherwise anticipated. The other lever here is miles traveled per gallon of gasoline. Think about this as fuel efficiency, but think about this as fuel efficiency across the entire U.S. fleet. So it's miles driven by all vehicles, and it's the gasoline consumed. And this is not a perfect metric. And there's a lot of noise in the data, as you can see. Why is this so noisy? Well, you know, if you think about it, it's, you know, some vehicles we might drive more, you know, maybe we have two vehicles in our house. We might be driving one that's more fuel efficient. So when gas prices turn higher, you might drive that one just a little bit more. That's built into this, you know, it, there's just a lot going on here. Someone mentioned that, you know, cash for clunkers back in the Great Recession, you know, that could have been part of the reason why fuel efficiency really jumped here in the early 2010s. But in general, gasoline consumption has trended higher over gasoline efficiency 
mileage, miles traveled per gallon of gasoline has trended up. About 10 years, we add so this rate down here, it gives us a little bit of a scale. So every 10 years, we add almost one mile per gallon of fuel efficiency. That's not insignificant, but it is, you know, it's a bit slow. It's not uh, earth, earth turning. Now, I will mention here, we are a long ways above that trend line. 23 and a half is what we saw for 2021. And as you can see, 22, almost 23. So about six tenths of a gallon above the trend line. So I want to wrap this up here. What has been the driving effect? You can read the article as much, but if you step back in the mid 2000s and said, hey, we were supposed to be at the trend line would say 169 billion gallons of gas in 2021. We came in at 135. What drove the difference? What made up the air? And quick calculations, back of the envelope calculations, about 85% of that was because we're not driving as much as we thought we were. In fact, driving really hasn't increased all that much. It has increased, but not all that much. And then the second component, fuel efficiency, that accounted for about 16% of the air. It's not that cars became more efficient over time. It's that it became more efficient than when we initially projected. In fact, it's about three quarters of a mile per gallon better than what the trend line analysis in the mid 2000s would have suggested. And so there's a couple of ways that this air can occur. One is that the signs go the wrong way or one thing is that we, we beat the sign. This is what happened. Fuel efficiency gains have been faster than what that maybe would have been. I wanna wrap this up by talking about electric vehicles. Anytime you talk about gas and gasoline consumption, everyone wonders about electrical vehicles. The way that disruption, that potential disruption falls in this data is with the efficiency. So you think about all the vehicles, we're still going to count the miles that they drive. They're going to show up in that survey. And they're going to be this relationship between gasoline consumed in the U.S., miles driven, and they're not going to be contributing to the gasoline consumed. And so they're going to add this efficiency. So maybe, potentially, possibly, you have to wonder, is part of this uptick in the last few years part of this electric vehicle equation. We'll see how this plays out. We'll see how this trend adjusts in the coming years. You certainly have a couple of variables that are moving this gasoline efficiency, this miles per gallon efficiency increasing in the next few years. High prices, the adoption of electric vehicles. So we'll continue to watch this and see how it plays out. The last thing I want to add about that efficiency chart is there's the air around them surveying how many miles driven, and then there's the air around how many gallons of gasoline did we use. So that variable, I talked about it being noisy for a lot of reasons. One of the noise is just kind of the errors of both of those surveys show up in that one metric. So it's an indirect measure. Keep that in mind. Also want to note here, you know, Jeff Young's been updating his estimates of the corn yield. And it's really him looking at the planting conditions or the, excuse me, the crop conditions and saying, what are the potential implications for the yield? If we were going to look at those crop conditions, fast relationships. And so I want to encourage you to, to take a look at that and see how that is moving along, moving forward. There's always another update that he puts out every week. And I guess the one thing I want to point out here is that crop conditions have slipped a little bit for corn nationally. We saw that play out similar for soybeans, a little bit of a slippage. For corn, we're you know getting close to that trend line. And similar with soybeans, we've been hanging out right below that trend line to 51.5. So we'll see where the USDA starts to make adjustments in the coming months, but that's where that is at. One last article that we haven't talked about that I want to mention is global vegetable oil trends. I encourage you to read this article. A lot of in excitement in the US around soybean 
oil, soybean oil usage, high soybean oil prices, soybean oil being the majority of the economic value of crushing a soybean, something we don't historically see. So we took a look at the global trends in this. And, you know, one thing that jumped out at me is palm oil is 36% of the market. All vegetable oils, soybeans is 28%. Vegetable oil production has trended upwards over time at a pretty linear fashion. We add around 620 million metric tons of vegetable oil produced globally today. It increases at about 6 million metric tons annually. So gives you an idea. It's closer to a 3% annual growth rate, but gives you an idea what kind of increase that we've seen. I believe uh, if you look at the past data, it's increased about 3.9% starting back in the, the 2000s whenever consumption was at a lower base level. What are the sources? Over time, we said that oil, the number one vegetable oil source was palm. Soybeans were number two, but that wasn't always the case. If you go back to 2000s, soybeans had a slight edge over the palm oil. So we'll see how this continues to play out now that palm oil is maybe not as advantageous. What really caught my eye here is not all the stocks of vegetable oils are tight. Soybeans are historically tight. Uh, Rapeseed, or more commonly known as canola, is you know uh, ten-year lows. Sunflower oil seeds fairly tight. Palm oils in a little bit of excess. But when we get to the globally traded picture of vegetable oil trade, palm oil now accounts for sixty percent. So we have this kind of broad bucket of vegetable oil, and there's some substitutability. There's some complementary natures there, but in general we got to remember that palm oil represents a much larger share of global trade of oil than it does production. So when we see countries start to say they're going to block or reduce or tariff or not allow the exports of their palm oil because of their concern about prices and inflation and availability in tight stocks, that's why the markets respond so aggressively is that palm oil is a huge source of the vegetable oil trade. Now, we showed earlier somewhere around 40% of vegetable oil consumption in the world is traded. I do want to add a little caveat to that, that, you know, soybeans are another way that we export vegetable oil. So China buys a lot of soybeans from the U.S., then they crush into oil and meal. And so there's the direct import of oil, and there's the indirect import of oil, of importing oil seeds. And so it's kind of hard to put your finger on how much trade is impacted by or how much trade impacts the broad oil seed and vegetable oil markets. So, man, we've covered a lot of territory here. I want to mention a new project that we have. I guess I need to wrap up here by talking about the June acreage report. Wrapped up three questions within the Ag Forecast Network. Back in March, we took the prospective planting estimates that the USDA came out with. What's the probability of this being above the corn estimate, above the soybean estimate, and above the combined corn and soybean estimate. So it was 85.9 million acres of corn, which it did get over, barely. The USDA estimated 89.9 million acres of corn. So not much of a change, but it did resolve the question as a yes. The USDA had previously estimated 91 million acres of soybeans. It came in at 88.3. So that was the no. That was probably the, the surprise to the market, the market shock there. And then, of course, we also asked about combined acreage, 180.5. That came in 
you know, somewhere uh, significantly lower, somewhere around 178 million acres. And so we wrote a little bit about this. Check your scores. Of course, we scored these across there. And several of you had really strong scores. One thing that we saw is that there wasn't a normal distribution of scores. It was a little bit bimodal where there were about five or six of you who did really well. And then sort of another group. So I guess I should back this up. About a, a third did really well. A third did pretty poor. And about a quarter did in the middle. So it was this bimodal distribution rather than this normal distribution. And so a little bit of a, you know, Im impact. I want to hit pause here and talk a little bit about why the estimates in June were different than in March. And saw a lot of comments on Twitter about this. And I guess I want to make a point here. There are several reasons for why the estimates in June can be different than March. Some of them could be the market sent a different signal to producers, which we saw corn prices go sharply higher. So that could be part of it. Some of it could be because of mother nature and prevented planting. That's definitely a possibility in some parts of the country. And the third piece here is survey air. And there's always air in surveys. And so that's, I guess, the three sources of this. So we saw a lot of sort of armchair quarterbacking going on on Twitter saying, why was the soybean number so different? What was the cause? You know, in the past, we saw big deviations in this year or that year. And just want to sort of pump the brakes just a little bit on that and recognizing that, you know, there was a 3 million acre swing from 88 million acres actual and 91 million estimates. It's about 3 million acres on 90 million. So it's in general, it, these are pretty small changes, I think, in the grand scheme of things. It's not insignificant, but we're talking about, you know, a three or 4% adjustment and there's errors in there and these errors can be, you know, non-insignificant. And so we will be able to unpack some of that air. Some of that source of that air is prevented planting, but we're not going to really know until the late fall or early to late fall. So how do we use these numbers? You know, we're going to see these numbers be used in the next WASDE estimate, and that's going to be really valuable. Uh, to update those projections. In general, these estimates are less noisy, have less air than the March estimate. So it's an important update, more insights. But at this point, we probably just have to put a lot of caution into narratives that we might be tempted or prodded or encouraged to weave to help explain why we didn't plant as many soybeans as we maybe initially anticipated back in March. There's the three reasons, survey errors, there's producers change their mind and there's the prevent plant situation. Again, we might be able to tease out the prevent plant situation later, but you know, keep in mind 3 million acre swing on a 90 million acre base is, you know, it's a little bigger than a 3% error. And so yes, it has a big impact on the balance sheet. Yes, it does tighten the soybean stock situation. But just keep in mind how all these data pieces fit together. Our last thing I want to mention is we have a new project over at AEI and it's, you know, folks like you who subscribe to AEI Premium that help, that allow us to grow and fuel the business. And so first off, thank you for that. But I want to share a new project that's part of the AEI Premium Outreach. It's free for everybody. It's available everywhere you listen to podcasts. It's called Ag Interrupted. And building off the success of the first two seasons of the AEI.ag Presents podcast series, season one being Escaping 1980, season two being Corn Saves America, Ag Interrupted is going to be a series of one-off stories, sort of business adventure stories about history, economics, and agriculture, where we're going to break down what might seem random 
historical points in U.S. ag history, but we're going to make them relevant and help decision makers think through the implications. So Ag Irrelevant is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can stream it from the AEI.ag website. It was in the newsletter this week. You can take a look at that. But the first topic we're talking about is cheese. It's titled Cheese Changes Everything. Every one of these episodes is going to be linked to some date in ag history. And so the first date here is June 29th, 1956. And so June 29th, 1956 is when Dwight D. Eisenhower, who's president at the time, signed the National Interstate and Defense Act. And the story here is this unanticipated yet decades-long impact that the interstate system has had on the dairy industry, and specifically cheese. And our guest for this episode, a professor emeritus from Cornell University, Dr. Annie Novakovich, shared with us how cheese and the story of cheese and the history of cheese had a big inflection point around how the U.S. thought about cheese and how the U.S. consumed cheese. And all this took place around interstates and how interstates changed the way Americans traveled, how Americans consumed, and now cheese is just about everywhere. So if you're a fan of cheese, if you're a fan of history, if you're a fan of decision-making, if you're a fan of agriculture, I encourage you to take a listen. They're pretty fun episodes. They move along really quickly, and we're really excited to share this new project with you. Again, thinking about decision-making, thinking about history, thinking about business decisions, thinking about ag and thinking about economics. This is a fun podcast for us to put together and look forward to your feedback and your ideas. Lastly, a quick story about the placebo effect that I recently had. I got some cookies and they were themed around a hamburger. So each cookie was a different layer of the hamburger. And so the cookie I had first was a pickle. And it was actually a cookie that had three pickles artfully decorated on them. And so I was eating this very delicious cookie. I started to taste the vinegary pickly taste. It was like I was anticipating it. It wasn't really there, but I could tell like my tongue was like, you know, seeking that out and was wondering if it was there. And this was a quick reminder of the placebo effect about how, you know, this idea of I'm eating a cookie that's decorated like a pickle might make you actually think that there is an actual pickle involved or there's some vinegar taste involved. You know, we wrote on the ideas that make us better section about the placebo effect. I encourage you to go read some of it. There are some, if you Google search around a little bit or you read that article, there are some very extreme cases of the placebo effect of how the placebo effect has been used, has been documented to have, you know, life and death consequences. But I just ate this pickle and I thought about how sometimes the placebo effect is just more powerful than we might want to give it credit. And so I encourage you to think about that on your holiday weekend coming up here. That's all we have for today. A long episode, apologize for that, but a lot of ideas to work through and share through. As always, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling your friends about all the great ideas that uh, we're sharing, how it's impacting your thinking. As always, if you have any questions, ideas, feedback, don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can email me, david at aei.ag, or ask us at aei.ag, where some of the best ideas we have come from you, the listeners. So we always value that feedback and that conversation with you. Again, that's all for this week. Until next time, stay curious. (music) 